Have you guys ever thought about what it would be like if the United States of America had a king? You guys ever wondered that before? Any, anybody say, yeah, I've thought about that before. If it was, it's a little bit, yeah, you've thought about that? Well, if you've never thought about it, I want you to think about it right now. Just take a few minutes and think about right now, what would it be like if in this country we had a king? Now, a king is much different than the president, by the way. The president runs things, yes, but the president can't just wake up one morning and decide to do whatever he wants without being, uh, without being approved by others. There's Congress, and they have to pass bills and do all these things. Well, a king doesn't have to do that. A king has sovereign rule over whatever country he uh, is, is ruling over. So that means that a king can wake up one morning and do whatever he wants, and no one can say anything about it. So a king can say, you know what, I feel like taxing the people more, and taxes go up. The king can say, you know what, everybody has to wear red today because I feel like it, and everybody has to wear red. The king can do whatever he wants. And if it's a queen, the queen can do whatever she wants. But of course we know that in our country, we don't have a king. We have a president. But I want you guys to think about this. Did you know that before July 4th, 1776, what, what happened on that day? Declaration of Independence. That's the 4th of July, Declaration of Independence. Did you know that before that day, there was no such thing as the United States of America? It wasn't even a thing yet. Before this day, America was known simply as the Americas, or it was also known as the United Colonies. And the United Colonies were, uh, they were colonies, so people came over here and developed these colonies, and we weren't America yet. We weren't our own country. There was actually a king ruling over these colonies, and the king's name was King George III. King George III was the king, and King George III, he wasn't really liked by people in the United Colonies. He wasn't really that popular. He was kind of just not the best king. So, uh, of course, we know that the Declaration of Independence was signed and America became a country. And the day that happened, King George III lost his rule over the United Colonies. There was no king anymore. And of course, like I said, you guys know this, that the government that America established was one to have a president and you would vote for this and the four years and all of the stuff that we know today. There has not been a king in America since that day. But I want you to take a minute right now and imagine, what if that never happened? What if the Declaration of Independence was never signed? And let's just say that King George III had a bunch of you know, sons, and they had sons more and more and more. And today, right now, in the year 2023, almost 2024, we were actually ruled by King George the 12th or 15th or something like that. Okay, And he's the king. And I want you guys to think about this. Imagine that he's actually a really bad king. Imagine that he's a selfish guy, he's rude, he's not good, and we didn't like him. Imagine that uh, this is a king who would get mad if he walked by you on the street and you didn't bow down before him. Imagine that if you went, when you go to school, even if you're homeschooled, even if you're doing school in your house, King George Twelfth made every school put a giant portrait of himself up, and you had to every day pledge allegiance to King George Twelfth. You had to say some kind of poem that he wrote because he just loves himself so much. Imagine, he's just a really bad king. That wouldn't be a good situation at all. I mean, if you have paid attention in history class, then you would know that there have been some really bad kings throughout history. 
not only in history class, but if you've been reading the Bible, if you've been paying attention to what the Old Testament says, then you know that there have been really, really bad kings. Even in the Bible, talks about how these were evil kings. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm grateful that we don't really have to worry about this anymore because we live in this country where we don't have kings. We don't have to worry about bad kings. It's a relief that we don't have to worry about this anymore because we don't have a king. We don't have to worry about this. But what if I told you guys that we actually do have a king? We have a king. And this king is not just the king of America. He's not just my king and your king. He is the king of the entire world. The king of all creation. In fact, he's actually called the king of kings. This king that we have, all other kings bow before him. He's in charge of everyone. He's in charge of everything. We do have a king, and his name is King Jesus. Hey, guys right here, make sure you're paying attention to things. His name is King Jesus. So I've got a question for you. How often do you think of Jesus as a king? Whenever you're praying, whenever you're worshiping, whenever you're thinking about Jesus, how often do you actually think about him and his kingship? And you think to yourself, Jesus is the king. As you can see, our series this Christmas is called Jesus, Savior, and King. And last time we were together, before the Christmas musical, Jose was preaching, and he established that Jesus is Savior. He is the Messiah. He's the one that the prophets were prophesying of, the one that the people were looking forward to, to come, that when he came as a baby, he came as Savior of the world. He is Savior. But when he came as a Savior, he also came as king. And today that's what we're talking about, what we're looking at, what the Bible says about the kingship of Jesus. So I want you guys to imagine once again, imagine if someone lived in a country that had a king, but they didn't know it. They had no clue that they actually lived somewhere that had a king ruling over it. And so this person, they don't know it, so they're doing all kinds of things and they're breaking the rules of this king because they just don't know that there is a king. Well, at some point, problems will come from that. You have to understand, first of all, that there is a king to follow the rules, to do what the king wants you to do. But what about this? What if this person actually did know that there was a king? They were fully aware there is a king who rules over this land, but they said, you know, I actually don't care. I'm not going to do what the king says. I'm not going to follow the king's rules. I'm going to ignore what he says. There would be problems. Complete disobedience, that is an issue. And so this morning, what I want you guys to understand is that, yes, there is a king, and his name is Jesus. And as the king of the world, as the king of the universe, you and I have an obligation to follow his orders, to do what he says, to listen to what he says. 
and to submit our lives to him as Savior and as King. So I want you guys to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. In the book of Philippians, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and specifically at the beginning of chapter 2, in the first four verses, he's encouraging these Christians to be united. He's encouraging these Christians to be humble. This is the classic passage that we have where we talk about humility and, and counting others as more significant than yourself and looking to the needs of others before you think about yourself. So Paul is encouraging this church to do this because they're having issues with this. They're being selfish. They're being prideful. They're having problems. And so he writes in these first four verses of chapter 2 that they need to be humble. That they need to put their, the needs of others before the needs of themselves. But then, in verse 5... Paul starts talking about Jesus. So if you have your Bible open, look now with me at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this morning, you guys need to realize Jesus Christ is king. He's king. You can't deny it. You can't say, oh, he's not my king. He's not mine. Uh, not my king. No, he is. He's king of the world. He's king of the universe. That means that whether you like it or not, Jesus Christ is king, and he rules, and he reigns with absolute authority, and he always will. But this king that we have is so much different than the average earthly king. This king that we have is humble. So here's point number one. I want you guys this morning to see the king's humility. Yes, Jesus is king, but Jesus is the humble king. So like I said, the first four verses in chapter 2 this is Paul's encouragement to Christians to be united, to be humble, and to see others as more important. And then in verse 5, Paul says that the Christians need to have this mind. They need to have this mindset. They need to be thinking about these things. They need to be humble. They need to do the things that he just told them to do. And then he adds after this, when he says uh, this mind, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying is that you can be humble like this, you can treat others this way, you can count them more important than you count yourself when you are found in Christ. So the more like Christ you become, the more humble you become. The more like Jesus you are, the more you see others as more important than yourself. And so what Paul is saying is this, Jesus is the perfect example of humility. 
He lived the perfect example of humility. He was the most humble man to ever live. He has done the most humble and selfless thing in history, which is that he became flesh. That God became flesh. And it says, now, Paul is jumping into this explanation of who Christ is and how he shows humility. He says this, Jesus was in the form of God. And so right off the bat here, we have Paul saying that Jesus Christ is God. That he has always been God. There's never been a day that Jesus was not God. So we have the Bible, and the Bible teaches us about this thing that we call the Trinity. And the word Trinity is not in the Bible, so people are going to say, well, if it's not in the Bible, the word's not there, then it's not biblical. Well, we don't have the word Trinity, but we have the concept of the Trinity. We see it. It's proof there in the Bible that we have the Trinity. For example, like when Jesus Christ was baptized, you have Jesus on earth, the God-man, and he gets baptized. And when he gets baptized, the Father speaks and he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased And then the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. So right there you see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. So Paul is saying, he is just echoing and and explaining that Jesus is God. So Jesus, he is God. God Almighty, creator God, he is God. And it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what this is saying is that Jesus is equal to God. He is God, but he didn't cling to this. He didn't hold to this. This means that Jesus, he actually had all of the rights and all of the privileges of of God because he is God, but he didn't grasp it. He didn't cling to it. It says that he emptied himself. And so what this means is that he didn't cling to his rights and privileges as God, but he, he set it aside. He, he set aside things like the, the glory of heaven. Jesus is God, and of course, that means he has the right to be in heaven, to be in this perfect place, to be in the glory of heaven. But he humbled himself, and he came down from heaven to this imperfect world, Stained with sin. It's one of the privileges that he set aside. And not only that, but he actually set aside his place of favor with God. Here's what I mean by that. You need to remember that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he took the sin of the world on his shoulders, God the Father turned his back on the Son. God the Father could not bear the sight of Jesus because he took the sin of the world. The Bible says he who knew no sin, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So this is God. The rights and the privilege, perfect, perfection, holy, awesome, comes to earth takes the sin of humanity upon his shoulders, willingly does this, willingly goes to the cross, willingly gives his life over, and God the Father turns his back on him and pours his wrath out on him, and he didn't deserve that. That's what you and I deserve. Jesus, 
he willingly chose to take the path of suffering. God himself set aside his rights and his privileges as God to come here and he chose to live a life of suffering. So this does not mean when it says that he emptied himself, it does not mean that Jesus emptied himself of his deity. And what that means is that Jesus never stopped being God. He never stopped being God. Some people are going to say that when he came to earth as a man, he wasn't God anymore. That's not true. He continued to be God the whole entire time. Jesus claimed to be God in the Bible. He looked upon the Pharisees and he said to them, I and the Father are one. This is the words of Jesus. He says, I and the Father are one. He's looking at these people and he's saying, I am God. But he was here as the God-man who took on flesh. You can see how he humbled himself. So when it says that he emptied himself, it's just showing once again how humble Jesus the King is. The humility that he showed to come here. And it even says that Jesus took the form of a servant. I want you to think about that again. God came to earth And he became a servant. God has the right and he has the privilege as God to be served. And that's what we should be doing with our lives is serving God. But he came to earth and he became a servant and he served others. And he helped others and he had compassion on others. Jesus knelt down on a dirty floor and he washed the disgusting feet of his disciples who have been walking from town to town in sandals and their feet were just caked in dirt and mud and gross. And Jesus came and he set this example of serving. He got on his knees and he washed their feet. So humble Jesus is. He did this as Savior and as King. That is how humble Jesus is. And it says that he was born in the likeness of men once again, Paul is just saying, yes, Jesus is man, and he is God. He is the God-man. Jesus, as a man, he faced the things that you and I face as people. You know that Jesus got hungry? You know that? When Jesus went a while without eating, yeah, just like you guys, your stomach growls and you're hungry, that happened to Jesus. Jesus needed to go to sleep. He He got tired. Jesus faced things like loneliness. Jesus was tempted. Satan himself appeared to Jesus and he tempted him. He faced temptation. Jesus went through pain. Jesus was betrayed by one of his best friends. He was a a man born in the likeness of men, but he was also God. He's the God-man. And so this Christmas, I want you guys to understand how important this is. I want you to understand how humble Jesus was to come as a baby. The humility that Jesus had to come for the Christmas story to happen in the first place. He's so humble. The humility that he showed in doing this. And so it's with these verses in mind in Philippians, I want you guys to turn over to the book of Matthew. We're going to go all the way to the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1. 
So flip over there to Matthew chapter 1. This is, as I said, the Christmas story as Matthew recounts here in his gospel. So we're going to read part of the Christmas story. And as you are reading this, as you're following along with me, I want you to think about, I want you to keep in mind the humility of Jesus in coming here as a baby and doing what he did for us. So here's what it says in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. She was pregnant. And that baby is God. Jesus humbled himself as God, humbled himself to the point of a baby to be born into this poor family who they were running away, they were scared. Where was Jesus born, guys? Bethlehem. More specifically now, where was he born? In a stable. In a stinky stable. And he was laid in a manger. That's God. You can see the humility of God in just the, the birth of Jesus. All the rights and privileges of God he set aside. And I want you to see, whenever you read this, this Christmas, as you recount the Christmas story, every single time you're reading this, every year from now on, I want you to think about the humility of Jesus in this. That he's king, but he humbled himself to this point. He humbled himself to come this way to be the savior of the world, to be the king of the world. And I want you to stop focusing on the presence just for a little bit. Stop thinking about what you're going to get. Stop thinking about these presents and think just for a minute about how amazing this is. Every year, whenever we think about Christmas and the Christmas story, we should be just struck with how awesome this is. This is what God did for you and for me. We should always be responding in amazement about how he humbled himself. It's amazing what he did for you. And he did this so that you could have a relationship with God, that you could be forgiven of your sin. So this Christmas, I really want you to see the king's humility. Well, Jesus is king. We've established that. And it's incredible to see how humble he was. We should be amazed at the humility of Jesus every single year, every single day. We should. But look, we haven't even covered all the ways that Jesus showed his humility. We haven't covered it all yet. 
He was certainly humble by coming to earth as a baby, by emptying himself of these things, by becoming a servant, but he showed his humility even more so by dying. When we think about the death of Jesus, here's point number two. This Christmas, I want you to cherish the king's death. So you need to see the king's humility, and I want you to cherish the king's death. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus the king is humble. He served the will of the Father. He obeyed God the Father completely, perfectly. He did everything God the Father said to do all the way to his death, even death on a cross. And so, yes, what I'm telling you this Christmas is that what you need to do is you need to cherish the death of the king. Normally, normally speaking, the death of a king is a really bad thing. It's really bad. It was never a good thing when the enemies of a king captured him and killed him. So how could someone cherish the death of their king if that's bad news? How could someone cherish the death of their king if that meant oppression? And and when we talk about the word cherished, we're talking about being glad and caring deeply about something. That's what you do when you cherish something. So when you think about this, how could someone cherish the death of their king? Because when a king died, it meant that an entire nation was going to be conquered and taken over by their enemies. The death of a king meant oppression for the king's people. A king's death brought fear and anxiety and hard times on the people. That's what a normal death of a king would do. We're using our imagination a lot this morning, so we're going to continue to do that. I want you to use your clever imagination. I want you to think and imagine that you belong to a nation And this nation is called Narrowland. It's an awesome name. The coolest name in history, Narrowland. And you and and your family for the last 400 years have been living in darkness and hopelessness and enemies have been conquering you because there is no king. There's no leader. There's no one helping you. It's dark So your great-great-great-grandparents were hopeless, and your great-grandparents, and and your parents, and now you, it's all your family knows is that it's just been hopeless, and it's been dark, and it's been hard, and and you have enemies, and and you're in pain, but you remember something that your great-great-grandfather told you when you were young. He told you one day that someone would come, that a king would come, that a savior was going to come and rescue you. And so every day for your whole life, you've been thinking about, I can't wait for that guy to come. I hope that I live to see it. I hope that he comes to help and to rescue. And one day, one awesome day, this man shows up and he says, I'm that king. I'm the one that your great-grandfather told you about. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. And it's amazing. It's, it's, it's an awesome day, and you get to meet this king, and he's amazing. He's kind, and he's compassionate, and he's a wonderful person. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is the greatest. I can't wait. He's going to rescue us. This is going to be great. But then a few days later, your enemies come, and your enemies capture this king. And then a few hours later, they kill that king. I want you to imagine how hopeless you would feel. Imagine how sad you would be all over again. 
that your hopes were high and now they're done. That's what the, the death of a regular king feels like. But the death of King Jesus is so much different. The death of King Jesus is the most evil and wicked act of all history. Nothing more evil has ever happened or will ever happen than this. That these wicked people killed the God-man, but listen, the death of Jesus, it did not mean defeat for his people. Not like a normal king. Rather than Jesus' people being oppressed after his death, the people of Jesus would become conquerors through his death. Because I want you guys to understand that without the death of Jesus, there would never have been the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus had never humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, then there wouldn't be the resurrection. And without the resurrection, there would be no hope. Life would be hopeless. Everything would be hopeless. Everything would be meaningless without the resurrection of Jesus. And so when we think about the coming of Jesus and what he did with his life and that he went to the cross and that he, he died on the cross, we should, we should cherish this death because it meant that the resurrection would come, that he would rise again, that he would defeat death and he would defeat hell. He would conquer it. And that you and I could put our trust in him as the conquering king, as the savior, and that we could be forgiven of our sin if we would just put our trust and put our faith in him as savior and as king. Look, we read from the beginning of Matthew, and I want to read from the end of Matthew. You don't going to flip there, but here's what it says in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 5. It says, But the angel said to the woman, the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. And these women, they walked inside that tomb. They saw where his body was laid. And his body was not there because he was alive. And this resurrection of Jesus means that we could be forgiven of our sin. And none of this would have ever happened without the death of the king. So again, this Christmas, I want you to see the love of Jesus in the Christmas story. I want you to see his love for you. That he would humble himself to the point of death on a cross to provide a way for you to be saved, for you to have your sin forgiven. So please stop thinking about this as just a story. Stop thinking about this as just some cute story that you hear every year and then you open presents. Let's make it personal this year, guys. When you think about this, think, Jesus did this so that I could be saved. He humbled himself this way. He willingly died on the cross. He rose again so that I could have my sin forgiven. That's why we celebrate Christmas. It's not just the birth of a baby. 
It's the coming of our Savior and King. And so every year when Christmas comes, we should be joyful and rejoicing about this because of what it means and what the story stands for, not just because we get to open presents. So, do you understand this? Do you realize what Jesus has done for you? Do not make the mistake again this year of just taking this for granted, of not thinking deeply about what the Christmas story actually means and why it's so amazing. So after you see the humility of the king, after you cherish the death of the king because you know that it meant the resurrection could happen and you trust the resurrection did indeed happen and Jesus is alive and he is king over everything, there's only one thing left for you to do and that's point number three. You can write it down this way. Bow before the king. Bow before the king. And in Philippians 2, starting in verse 9, this is continuing Paul's description of Jesus and what happens. It says that, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has highly exalted Jesus. Jesus now has the name that is above every other name, and the name that Jesus now has is Lord. He is Lord. He is in charge. He is king. He is in control. He is sovereign. And God exalted Jesus so highly because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. So God exalted him. And it says that at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, at his name, the Lord over all things, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. And it says in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And so what this is communicating is that everything, every created thing will eventually bow before Jesus, admitting, yes, this, he is king, acknowledging that he is king, that he is Lord. This means angels will do this. Demons will do this. Christians that are in heaven, Christians on earth, unbelievers on earth, and all the lost people that are currently in hell one day they will bow and they will confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. So right now, maybe you're thinking this. Well, if one day everyone is going to do this, doesn't that mean that in the end, everybody is going to get saved? If everyone's bowing and confessing him as Lord? That's not what this means. This bowing and this confessing, it's not a bowing before God in submission and repenting of sin. It's not a confessing him Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, like the Bible says to do. This is going to happen because when Jesus returns, it's going to be undeniable that he is who he says he is. And so it will be a joyful thing for Christians. 
It'll be a joyful thing for people on earth who are here, who've professed faith. It'll be a joyful thing for those that are in heaven to indeed bow before him and say, yes, you are king, you are Lord. I confess this, I believe this. It's gonna be a joyful thing for Christians, but it's gonna be a really painful thing for non-Christians. Because yes, they're gonna bow before him. They're gonna confess that he's Lord. But it's gonna be too late for these people to repent. They're gonna realize in that moment that they were wrong. That they should have believed. They should have put their trust in him. But now it's too late. And so they're confessing with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. They're saying, yes, you are Lord, but I I was wrong about this. And they're bowing before him because they have to, because he is king. And they're saying, I am, it's painful because they were wrong. You need to bow before the king before it's too late. I remember one day, I was growing up, I don't know how old I was, let's just say I was like eight or nine. Uh, my dad came into my room and he says, hey, you need to clean your room, Jacob. Clean it. it. It is a mess. I tell you every day to make up your bed and you don't do it. I tell you all the time to clean up the toys on the floor. Clean up your room. And I said, yes, sir, I'll do it. And he goes, no, don't waste any time. Like, you need to start doing it right now. You need to clean your room right now. He says, I'm going to come back in a little bit. And if your room is not cleaned, you are going to be in so much trouble because I've asked you to do this over and over and over again. I said, okay, dad. Yes, sir. I understand. I'll clean my room. And he said, okay. And he walked away. I proceeded to do everything except clean my room. Didn't clean it. Played video games, went to my brother's room, hung out for a little bit, didn't clean, didn't clean. I went back to my room eventually, saw that it was still a mess, and I was like, eh, whatever. A few minutes later, guess who walked in? My dad. Immediately, guys, the fear that I was overwhelmed with at the sight of my dad walking into my room when I did not do what he asked me to do. He looks at my room, And he says, okay, I told you that if you didn't clean your room, you're going to be in trouble. So you're grounded. You're done. You're not not doing anything after school. You're not hanging out with your friends. You're not riding your bike. You're not even playing with your siblings. You're coming to your room. You're laying on your bed. And you're just going to lay there for the next few days until I say it's done. Because you've been ignoring me for the past, I mean, it had been a long time. I ignored my dad for a long time. Didn't clean my room. It wasn't just that day. So, of course, after he tells me this, what am I doing? I'm on my knees. Please, Dad, don't ground me. I don't want to be grounded. I want to ride my bike. I don't want to do this. Please, Dad, please, Dad. And he just looks at me and he says, Jacob, it's too late. It's too late. I've been telling you to do this for over and over and over and over for so long now, and you didn't do it, and I come in and I see it, and it's done. You're punished. The punishment's here. He says, you're still going to clean it. (laughs) You're still going to do it, but you're not going to get rewarded for it. Because I told you to do it, you didn't do it, and it's too late. That's kind of what it's going to be like for a lot of people when Jesus returns. They're going to bow down, they're going to confess that he's Lord, but it's going to be too late. So my question for you today, this morning, this Christmas season is this. Have you bowed before King Jesus? Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned away from your sin? Do you hate your sin? 
And have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you put your faith in him? This is so much more important than presents. This is so much more important than decorating the Christmas tree and Christmas cookies and all the fun things that come along with Christmas. And all those things are great. But do not make the mistake of thinking that that's the main thing. Because the main reason why we do this, the main reason why we talk about this every year is because of Jesus, for what he has done, because he is Savior, because he is King, and you need to put your trust in him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you so much for the Christmas story. Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself the way that you did, for coming here, being born as a man, as a baby, for becoming a servant, for obeying the will of the Father, for living the perfect life, and for dying on the cross. Thank you for taking my sin on your shoulders. Thank you for bearing the wrath of God in my place. Also that I could be forgiven of my sin, that I could have a relationship with you. God, so I pray this Christmas that I would focus on this, that all of our students, all of our leaders would focus on what the Christmas story is all about. It's not about presents. It's not about anything other than you. So thank you, God, for this. Thank you for providing a way for us to be saved. Thank you for the Christmas story. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.